it only happens innocently enough. A member of your congregation approaches you and seeing you as filling an office with authority on the scriptures asks what the church believes about a topic that is frequently talked about in the community. Homosexuality, divorce, whether it's okay to go to another church's worship service even though they're not Missouri Synod. Now, your first reaction may be to talk about pertinent Bible passages that address or may be related to this issue. But then after some frustration, your well-meaning brother and sister in Christ says, yeah, well, I, I know what the Bible is and what it says, but I was wondering what uh, Lutherans believe about this, what we believe about this, you know, the Missouri Synod. Because after all, everybody is reading and interpreting the Bible their own way. But what do we as Missouri Synod Lutherans believe? Your impulse, your reaction may be varied. Concede to their wishes and hand them a what about tract. Rifle through your office and find the pertinent CTCR documents. Now, the tech savvy among us may direct them to the Synod's official website. And if you're particularly savvy, you could quote a doctrinal resolution or doctrinal statement from Synod and Convention. Or if you're the more nostalgic type, you could quote Walther or Winnikin or Fotenhauer or even Luther. However, most of us will just resort back to the, well, in seminary, I learned this response. But how many of us consider how damaging this kind of reaction would be to our community's understanding of the Word of God and its place as the authoritative voice among us? Your well-meaning parishioner is only seeking a living voice of authoritative application of the Word of God to their particular problem. But this quest leads to a problem of its own. When asking what the Missouri Synod believes about a particular topic, where do we go for the authoritative voice? And to what degree does Synod and Convention have the authoritative voice regarding what the Scriptures say and how they form us as a community of believers? Who specifically in Synod has the authority to make statements and even resolutions regarding how the Word of God is interpreted and enforced as binding among us? When Synod makes resolutions and statements that bind us together as a confessing body, are we or are we not making a canon law or a Gemara or even a Talmud for American Lutheranism? Since the Lutheran Church has never demanded an official interpretation of a given Bible passage, except for maybe Romans 16, 17, early on in our history, it has demanded and will continue to demand an application of doctrine to a given situation in the life of the church. Now, the sticky part of this problem is that the latter would involve human judgment to a given circumstance, and that may change fundamentally over time. In this presentation, I will explore how the Missouri Synod has historically read Scripture as a community. And through this presentation, I will highlight key shifts of authority in synodical doctrinal resolutions and statements to illustrate a unique conundrum that we as a Synod are left to evaluate. Namely, what is authority in the Missouri Synod? 
If it is the word of God as we confess together, then who is the living voice of authoritative interpretation of that word of God among us? Since the Holy Scriptures serve as the only rule and norm of doctrine and practice for our church, neither the synod nor any other ecclesiastical body can actually create doctrines. The synod does, however, make statements which apply the doctrines of Scripture to contemporary issues. This, I would say, is the primary purpose of doctrinal resolutions of the synod. The synod brings the Word of God to the day at hand. The doctrinal resolution, where it is an application to a particular circumstance, is a part of history. The doctrine embodied in the resolution, however, is eternal and therefore always contemporary and unchanging. So part of the problem with answering your parishioner's question is that they actually may be asking two separate questions that somehow pretend to be one. Namely, what is the teaching, biblical teaching, Lutheran understanding of that teaching, and how does it apply to their particular circumstance? Since our synod is bound together by common confession of our Christian faith for the purpose of carrying out that faith, it is important that we make clear to ourselves and the world what our faith is. And so the synod pledges itself to the teachings of the Lutheran confessions as true expositions of Scripture. Now, while the subscription to the confessions does not change, the synod may need to come to consensus on issues that are not addressed by either Scripture or the confessions for the sake of Christian unity. This, I would say, is the secondary purpose of doctrinal resolutions, to act as clarity of confession to contemporary problems, much like the Reformers did when formulating the formula of Concord. A doctrinal resolution allows the members of synod to speak with one voice in a world of various opinions and interpretations of Scripture and the Lutheran confessions. In this sense, doctrinal resolutions may change from time to time as the church reapplies doctrine to a new circumstance. People may ask us what the LCMS teaches, and we have our own ways of answering that question. Now, these ways of answering that come so easily to our lips, however, actually represent different voices of authority. And at different times in history, these voices have risen or declined in importance. By looking at the doctrinal resolutions and statements, one can trace this history of authority. The history is rather simple. We move from a living voice, in a court, which is a chorus singing in a very small room together, to a living voice that is, fragment, that is a fragmented cacophony because now they're all singing the same song but in different places of the music and at different rates and pitches, thus making noise. It is still composed of the same voices that were in the small room, but now they are dispersed all over the place. And that dispersion can create problems, particularly when each pastor has his own <laughs> equalizer to where he can highlight certain voices above or over another. Thus, we need to be aware of this history so that we use it rightly as we respond to inquiry both from within the church and from without, lest we give the wrong impression of what it is that we say and believe as a synod. Ultimately, we want it to be the word of God that speaks. Now, realizing the nature of my topic, 
and that it's dealing with uh, doctrinal resolutions of the Missouri Synod, I know that that's not always the most riveting uh, subject matter to be talking about. They usually raise more questions than they raise interest. And as a joke, I was going to start out this presentation by saying, according to Synod Bylaw 1.1.-.C.3, but I thought that that might be a bit much for you guys. Now, realizing that the subject matter is a, a bit bland in nature, I, I will beg your indulgence and I will beg um, a, a favor. I do need to set up some definitions before we can reach some of the conclusions that I found through my work on the Doctrinal Resolution Project. By the way, um, the Doctrinal Resolution Project is available at CHI, and you'll want to pick up the disc copy because this is the printed copy. And it is uh, single-spaced <laughs> and double-sided. <laughs> Now, if you're wondering how it is that a parish pastor can know so much about doctrinal resolutions of the Missouri Senate, it's because I've read this thing over three times <laughs> as I worked on the Doctrine Resolution Project for Synod. In that, I learned some very interesting things, which I will get to in the conclusion. But first, we need to lay some groundwork. We need to set some definitions. And the first one is probably the most important. What is Synod? Well... It wouldn't be Lutheran if it didn't start with a good argument. <laughs> but after almost two years of arguing about the identity of Lutheranism in America, the Altenburg debates in April of 1841 sought to answer definitively the question of authority in the church and the relation between laity and the authority of the office of the keys. Now, Walther convinced the majority that uh, the church can be found wherever the gospel was preached and the sacraments were administered. And this was very important to that group of people who, though they had erred, believed that all of the authority in the church came from their bishop. But Walther said that even though you lack your bishop, you are still the church because you have the gospel and you have the sacraments. Walther, Walther says there are times and conditions when you need to organize your church in a specific way. But he does say that the way that the church organizes itself is not a matter of doctrine. But the times and conditions when it, when it is profitable for the church to place supreme deciding uh, and regulating power in the hands of representatives is necessary, he said sometimes. For instance, he points to the churches in Germany that were under consistories for a time. And he said, and that was great for Germany. He then points to the Swedish churches and said that they thrived under an Episcopalian constitution, though they were Lutherans. And he said that worked for Sweden. But here in America, there needs to be a different kind of organization. He tells the delegates to the Synod's first convention that the choice of the form of government for a church is an inalienable part of their Christian liberty. And this newly established organization is strictly advisory in nature. Congregations are free to govern themselves, but they are a part of a synod. It asks for nothing unconditionally of our congregations except submission to the word. Now, Walther realized, to be sure, that even in an organization committed unconditionally to the word, we must expect battles. It's because Walther had been to a couple of congregational meetings. <laughs> especially that one in Altenburg. Anyways, longer story. 
But these battles viewed in light of the gospel-centered purpose of synod will not be the mean, depressing battles for obedience to human laws, but the holy battles for God's word, for God's honor and kingdom. Missouri Synod continues to this day, but has it lost its luster for holy battles for God's word? Or do we leave that work to committees? Matters of doctrine were chief among the conversations of districts and synod and convention, but theological essays and discussions seem at times to take a second seat to worship experiences and Bible studies, which are meant to give information rather than be the lively, thriving, interpretive activity of a community of believers engaged in the Word. That being said, what is the Synod's belief about the Word of God? Now, I'm sure that you all, if I were to ask each of you randomly, because you have read uh, Synod's Constitution, would be able to quote Article 2 of Synod's uh, Constitution and Article 8 just right off the top of your heads. But just, I don't want to embarrass anybody by calling on you by name, so just to be sure, I'll go ahead and, and read them here now. In the signing of the Constitution, the members of the LCMS have of their own free will pledged their unconditional acceptance to the Word of God. Now, the confessional article of Synod's Constitution states that the Synod and every member of Synod accepts without reservation, number one, the scriptures of the Old and New Testament as the written word of God and the only rule and norm of faith and practice. And number two, that all of the symbolical books of the Evangelical Lutheran Church are as true and unadulterated statement and an exposition of the word of God. Now, in accordance with all this, Article 8 of the Constitution says that all matters of doctrine and conscience shall be decided by the Word of God. All other matters will be decided by majority, of, by majority vote. So every member of Senate is on record as agreeing that right teaching in the church can be determined only on the basis of God's written Word. Now, in synod, right doctrine can never be established by majority vote. Let me say that again. In synod, right doctrine can never be established by majority vote, not even if it's unanimous. But this does not mean that the members of synod will never vote on doctrinal issues that do and may and will come up. Questions will inevitably surface about what God's Word teaches about all kinds of things that we will interact with in our everyday life. So when questions do come up, how does Synod deal with that? Well, Synod takes the Word of God and they study it together, and thereby that studying of the Word of God, they formulate statements and resolutions that assert their confession about what they believe the Word of God to be saying. But it is not establishing doctrine, because that is something that only the Word of God can do. Rather, it is determining what the majority of members of Synod believe that God's Word teach about the issues under debate. But all of this begs a question. What is the role of synodical resolutions in general? Are they binding in the same way that Scripture and confessions are? To this, I would like to quote one of my favorite resolutions to quote when talking about uh, synodical resolutions. You guys ready for this? It's my favorite. 
It's Resolution 315 from the Denver Convention in 1969. You guys remember the one. It's about altar and pulpit fellowship with the American Lutheran Church. Now, at this time, uh, um, uh, a delegate requested a congregational referendum for the issue. The president of Senate at that time simply replied that the adopted resolution was the legal expression of the Senate and that a referendum would be pointless. This says quite plainly that a delegate convention is the highest tribunal authority in the Senate and the final arbiter of matters pertaining to the Senate itself. A synodical resolution is a legal expression of the Senate to which all who function in the Senate's name are bound. So that begs a follow-up question. To what degree have the roles of these synodically adopted resolutions, which were the expression of the Senate on doctrinal matters, been binding? Well, as I mentioned before, since the Synod accepted Article II of its Constitution as its confessional base, it ipso facto adopted a resolution on doctrinal manners, meaning that it declared that it recognizes the Scriptures as the only rule and norm of faith and practice. So let's recap. Synod sets up the principle that the Scriptures are the sole and final authority for everything it does. Second, however, it declares that while it recognizes the scriptures alone establishing articles of faith, it at the same time recognizes that the Lutheran symbols correctly confess these articles. So in making the second affirmation, the synod did, in fact, by resolution of the convention, adopt that position as its own and binding upon all members. So which is it? Are we bound to word of God and confessions alone? Or are we bound to word of God and confessions alone and all the resolutions of synod? How does it work? How does it work out? And then you're confronted with the equal problem of which synodical resolutions are you going to be bound to? After all, there's a couple. In fact, this is how the Doctrine Resolution Project found its genesis. A teacher of uh, the Synod, um, and, or somebody desiring to be a teacher of the Synod, uh, raised a question of what they are bound to. They said, you are bound to all, uh, you are bound to Scripture and the Confessions, and you need to make yourself aware of all of the resolutions of Synod. They said, okay, great. Um, where do I find a copy of those? And they kind of went around and said, does anybody have a copy? <laughs> of all of the synodical resolutions of synod on hand, but they couldn't find them in an easily accessible place. Thus, the genesis of the Doctrinal Resolution Project. I don't know about you, but this is not light reading, and having read it through it myself, um, it would take a very long time. In fact, it took me years to work through all of this material. So, what is it? Are we bound to Scripture alone? Are we bound to Scripture and confessions alone? And are synodical doctrinal resolutions and statements binding in the same way that Scripture and confessions are? This was the particular conundrum that uh, we were faced with when putting together the project. The Synod did, in fact, by resolution of the convention, adopt that position as its own and binding upon all members. We have to be careful. Synod did not presume by convention resolution to establish doctrine. 
but to adopt an agreeable means of establishing doctrinal authority as agreeable to the word of God. So we're left to wonder, what, if any, proper analogies can we draw between doctrinal resolutions and how we establish doctrinal authority in the Lutheran Church? The best way that I can, the best analogy I can think of in my head between how we get from scripture and confessions to how we uh, proclaim and confess that scripture and confessions among us here today is uh, an analogy taken directly from the confessions itself. If you think back to the formulators of the formula of Concord and the situation that they were faced with after the Leipzig interim, when all of the debacle with Melanchthon was going on and there was concessions being made about the faith that were causing people a lot of angst and there were certain allowances given that they said were completely against the whole purpose of the Reformation, they said, we have a problem, we have a crisis, we have a situation, we have a need to make confession of what we believe. And so they went back to Scripture and the Augsburg Confession and said, what do the scriptures and what does the Augsburg Confession say about our current circumstance? They worked through those things and they developed the formula of Concord, which spoke directly to the issues of the day. They made confession and they based it off of scripture and the Augsburg Confession. But this isn't the only time that the Lutheran Church has done this. Think of the apology to the Augsburg Confession. After they submitted the Augsburg Confession, they said, and if you want more evidence, we'd be glad to give it. And they said, why don't you just go ahead and start? And so in 1531, they came out with the apology, which clarified what they believed about the Augsburg Confession. You don't have to stop there, though. Think of Luther's small called articles. That's another example of taking Scripture and the Augsburg Confession and clarifying what you mean. And so if anything, what the doctrinal resolutions are is a way that we've learned from our confessional history of how to make confession and stand upon it. We have a circumstance at hand that neither scripture nor confessions speak directly to. And so we go back to scripture and confessions and we see um, what ways that we can um, interact with those sources as a means of stating a confession among us here today. So we're really doing what uh, we've always learned to do. And heirs of the Reformation as we are, we are obligated to make statements and resolutions and, and confessions about what the Word of God and the Lutheran Confessions say about any number of given problems that'll come among us. That's our job. And we learned it from our history. So the, the do uh, doctrinal resolutions of the Missouri Synod are not canon law in that once it's passed, we are bound to it slavishly and uh, we, we operate under this thing. No, we are only bound to the word of God and confessions. But instead, uh, the doctrinal resolutions of the Missouri Synod act more like a contemporary application or a systematic theology, a way of saying, here's a circumstance at hand. And this is how we uh, believe that the Word of God and the Lutheran Confessions inform us on how to react to this certain circumstance. That is the nature of doctrinal resolutions and statements. In my work, um, it became uh, very apparent that um, 
what we are putting together could be a, a very uh, misunderstood kind of thing. When we put together the Doctrine and Resolution Project, there was this fear that um, people might look at it as a resource to say, ooh, finally I get, to, I get to pick my resolution and stand on it. Because remember, our resolutions are binding upon all members. We thought this was a real danger because that would treat um, our doctrinal resolution and statement history kind of like canon law. And so we had to set some ground rules for um, what the doctrinal resolution project was um, and what it was not. And here's what we put down. Doctrinal resolutions of Senate are a collection of action taken by the Missouri Synod Convention with regards to the application of scriptural teaching concerning any contemporary issue that need further action or clarification for our walking together as Synod. What the doctrinal resolutions of Synod are not, they are not canon law of the Missouri Synod. And they are not a history of doctrinal development for the LCMS, making doctrine only an object of history. That would be incorrect. When we had finished the project, it, was, um, it became very apparent to me that as I was reading through the project, I began to see a spectrum in the Missouri Synod of authority, a spectrum of authority that um, showed how we um, operated under those uh, different um, eras of authority. And I've identified, um, and it wasn't on purpose, I wasn't looking for seven, but I've identified seven eras of authority in the Missouri Senate. And this is really a result of making resolutions and statements that over time um, we would say one thing and then we would end up saying another. And so we had to find a way to deal with all of this. Uh, by the way, in the Missouri Senate, there was no such thing as formal doctrinal resolutions um, in the Missouri Senate until the 70s. Everything before the 70s that was in the synodical berichta, that is the proceedings, was considered the doctrinal position of the Missouri Synod. So there were no formal um, resolutions as we have them today. That distinction came later. And you can see that on your handout. But you can also see on your handout that um, some very embarrassing things happened in the history of our um, synodical resolution history. Like, for instance, in uh, 1959... Uh, we made a statement um, that I have printed here for you, Resolution 309. The Synod resolved to affirm that every doctrinal statement of a confessional nature adopted by the Synod as a true exposition of the Holy Scriptures is to be regarded as public doctrine in Synod and that all Synod's pastors, teachers, and professors are held to teach and act in harmony with such statements and encourage those who dissent to voice their concern through proper channels. That's the statement that we made. And that's like a wow statement, right? But look at what happened the next year, in 1962, or the next uh, convention I've listed there. The Synod reviewed the logic of Resolution 9, which was before of Committee 3 and 59, and found that to bind all doctrinal resolutions on the Synod for the sake of them simply being resolutions was unconstitutional since it altered Article 2 of the Constitution, making the synodical resolutions equal to Scripture and confessions. So in 1959, we made a mistake that we later had to repeal in 1962. And this is often the case in our synodical doctrinal history. For instance, um, uh, I'm going to throw this out to the crowd. Does anybody know, um, uh, randomly, uh, no cheating, I see you back there, 
Does anybody uh, know the reason why uh, teachers were originally placed on the roster of the LCMS? Anybody know? Oh, tax purposes. That's interesting. The other sectional, that was what they led with as well. That's close. That's very close. It was in 1896 when Synod and Convention said teachers should be put on the roster of the LCMS so that way they can receive the half-price ticket on the train. Oof. That didn't come back to bite us at all, did it? <laughs> it wasn't until 1953 at the Houston Convention when they did a huge study on the role of teachers in the Missouri Synod that they said previously we were wrong. To put them on the roster is very important because teachers are an extension of the pastoral office. And so their work is, is rightly placed there um, on the roster because they are an extension of the pastoral office. Now, in that resolution as well, they, um, they kind of uh, <laughs> they made a boo-boo because um, you, might ask, you might ask yourself, well, what, what then about uh, women teachers? because they had women teachers. And it was put before the uh, convention floor that they should just ordain all teachers then. <laughs> and they said, and this is, uh, this is what they said, I'm not, uh, this isn't my personal opinion, I'm just quoting now. They said, well, it's no problem that women are teachers and um, called workers and under the pastoral office because once they have children, um, they'll simply um, be at home for the rest of their days. Ooh. I mean... Seriously? I mean, this is the reason why synodical resolutions are not canon law. Hmm? It's a bit embarrassing. It gets better. What about the issue of women's suffrage or the, the women voting in the church? I like to call this the perfect example. As previously mentioned uh, before in my presentation, the perfect example of why a synodical resolution cannot be canon law and is more akin to systematic or contemporary theology is the issue of women's suffrage in the church. Now, if you're looking for a secular example, I suppose you could look at um, um, how in the United States we, um, we enacted prohibition. You remember the 18th Amendment of the United States Constitution where they said, no more alcohol unless it's for religious purposes. All of a sudden, church attendance went way up. And notice how that, um, that uh, amendment to the Constitution was uh, overrun by the later um, 21st Amendment of 1933. Now, just in the same way that our own Constitution said, no alcohol, but it's okay, they were okay with that as Americans because the Constitution is seen as a living document. See? Now, what is more living and active than the Word of God? Now, I have to be careful because the actions of Synod and its resolutions do not have the same origin or effect as policy and law in America, but it does provide an example of how this same thing happens in other contexts. For instance, listen to these statements made by Synod and Convention. You guys ready? In 1863, they said this, Although women have the right to vote, they are expressly forbidden to exercise it by God. Whoa. In 1923, they said uh, they changed to say that women's suffrage in the church is just a practical question of polity, not a principle of doctrine. They changed their mind. Well, in 1938, they flipped back 
because they were flabbergasted by the issue, and they appeal back to an older era of authority by saying that according to Dr. Pieper, who died in 31, <laughs> women are not granted voting membership in synodical congregations. So don't get mad at us, blame it on Pieper. Well, in 1953, Synod says it has based its position on women's suffrage on the biblical principle found in 1 Corinthians 14.34 and 1 Timothy 2.11-12. And in 1959, it reaffirms the historic position of Synod against suffrage by stating that it is based on sound scriptural principles. And we all know what happened in 68 and 69 when it changed completely to where in 1971 it says it is the new position of synod that a woman may vote in a congregation as long as the polity does not allow women to hold a pastoral office or exercise authority over men. This slight adjustment is the contemporary shift that occurred since the first statement had been made. Apparently the polity, which was, as I previously stated before, is not a matter of doctrine in Missouri, but remember, it's just an issue of adiaphora, has changed in a way that it could allow for previous interpretation um, to be withdone, uh, done without, and to have a new practice. Either that, or it's just a blatant change in belief. Now, in 1968, uh, 1986, uh, Synod reaffirms women's suffrage and the right to permit women to hold congregational or synodical office by election or appo uh, appointment. This is the most dramatic change in doctrine and practice in the history of the Missouri Synod. This proves the point that synod resolutions and statements cannot be Gemara or Talmud or canon law. But synod resolutions are always a collection of action taken by the Missouri Synod and Convention. It is systematic theology. It is contemporary theology. Now, through my work on the Doctrinal Resolution Project, um, I, I got to see a whole spectrum of authority that I mentioned before. And in that spectrum of authority, I was able to identify these seven eras of authority. And here's what they are. The Missouri Senate under Walther, the Missouri Senate under Pieper, uh, the Missouri Senate under Institutions, and uh, the Missouri Senate... Um, as Seminex and the destruction of seminary authority, um, the era of repristination authority, and also the era of the denominational disconnect and the quest for authority. So let's go th through these real quick. How am I doing on time? Yes. All right, good. There'll be time for questions. Don't worry. Okay. So the first era of authority, the era of authority under Walther. Now, Ever since the Altenburg debate, there was a, a need in the Missouri Synod for somebody to come in and be both pastoral and academically theological, and that uh, became the person of C.F.W. Walther. Under the first era of authority, Walther was able to come alongside the synod that needed a pastor because of the Stephanite debacle, and yet needed somebody who was grounded in orthodox theology to come along and help the synod um, come off the ground. Now, I don't believe that this was a bad thing at all, because um, in a time of confusion, you really need a singular voice. Um, just think of it this way, um, and I don't mean to sound arrogant by this, but Walther was really um, the American Luther. Think of it that way. 
in a time when the whole church was in an uproar, Luther um, acted as a singular voice of authority that people can go to um, for uh, guidance. And, and Walther acted in much the same way. Now, Walther, um, he had, uh, was able to solidify his authority because he used the living voice of the Orthodox fathers. He used um, Luther. He used Quenstead. He used all of those voices to undergird his statements, which solidified his authority. That, and he was, bo- uh, he was both synodical president and seminary president at the same time. I mean, that just kind of helps, right? Now, his means for disseminating his, um, his views was uh, Der Lutheraner and Lehre und Vera. I mean, those became uh, key to him um, sharing his views. Now, the next era of authority was the era of authority under Pieper. Now, Dr. Pieper, in much the same way as Walther, acted as the next voice of doctrinal authority in the Missouri Synod. Now, the double portion of Walther's office as synodical president and seminary president means that people could easily recognize his activity uh, as simply following the same line as Walther's, much like Chemnitz, the second Martin of Lutheran Orthodoxy in Europe, who took Luther's theology and clarified it for a new Lutheran church, even against the aberrations of Melanchthon. So Pieper introduced lengthy and detailed doctrinal analysis and conventions to help promote Lutheran Orthodoxy and Lutheran Orthodox theology, even over and against other groups that sought sought to muddle American Lutheranism up. Now, in uh, this era of authority, it's really the solidification of our theological identity and tradition and practice. The difference between Walther and Pieper is that uh, Walther tried to centralize education. Pieper wanted to expand it. He took the two seminaries, he took the two colleges and made them eight, you know, and um, he uh, expanded the printing. Oh, sorry. He expanded the CPH. I'm Italian. I speak with my hands. Um, he expanded the CPH's activity as a means of disseminating his ideas. He used Der Lutheran or Lehre und Vera, but he really expanded everything out. Now, the next era of authority is the Missouri Senate under institutions. Now, in the absence of iconic figures such as Walther and Pieper and the like, the institutions then took over the role of authority by which the specific person spoke. Um, In this era, teachers and colleges um, became very important for disseminating uh, authoritative statements. And this is where seminary Gutachten comes in, official statements made by the seminary to settle um, controverted issues. You guys probably all remember the term controversy in the 20s, where missionary Arndt was, um, and there was a big upheaval in the missionary field because missionary Arndt wanted to use the term Shang-Di for God instead of Shen, and Shang-Di was kind of the term that they were already using. Missionary Lilligard says, you guys have to kick him out of Senate because he can't use that term. And they sent the question off to the Missouri Senate, and the seminaries prepared an official statement, and they said, both terms are useless. <laughs> But if you have to use one, Shangdi is probably the best. So we're not getting rid of missionary aren't sorry. And that was it. That settled the whole issue. When the seminaries made the statement, that's what happened. The next era of authority was, uh, is Seminex and the destruction of seminary authority. It almost goes without saying that the Seminex controversy destroyed the ability for seminaries to function under the same authority of Gutachten as it had in the past. The regulation of CTCR as, a, as the means by which synod, including laypersons, teachers, seminary faculty, theologians, and synodical officials can collaboratively produce 
authoritative interpretations of the Word of God concerning contemporary issues has taken the shift away from synodical presidency alone, synodical seminaries alone, colleges and districts alone, even synod and convention alone, as long as the CTCR documents are voted in, is all a byproduct of the collapse of seminary authority during those most turbulent times known as seminex. The next era of authority is called repristination authority, and this is the one that we find ourselves um, in, in today. What seems to be a reaction to the collapse of the seminary authority is a resurgence of interest in the Lutheran Orthodox fathers and early LCMS founders, as if to get back to the good old days is to literally repristinate and assert old confession over and against anything new, or at least anything from 1950s on. However, in a disturbing way, proponents of this type of authority often will cite these authorities, whomever they claim it to be, over and against synod. So now instead of Walther being for synod, he would be painted as being apart from synod. Whereas I'm a firm believer in the value of good books, and everybody knows I've never turned my nose up at a Lutheran classic, to assume that just because they are older means that they are somehow purer and without the stain of rationalism, dead orthodoxy, or the higher critical method, and therefore better, uh, and, and a better source for informing our church for today is a bit of a stretch. For instance, how is Gerhard's argument for the inspiration of the Old Testament Hebrew text based off of vowel pointing a good argument for the argument for the inspiration of Scripture today? It just isn't. How does Walther's view of dancing and card playing play a role in our planning of the National Youth Gathering? Or why is it that the Synod doesn't stress um, our historical view on insurance or usury? But on a more serious note, has Synod forgotten what the word amen means in terms of our prayer fellowship stance? It used to mean so much more than it did for today. Repristination authority gets at the new conundrum that the Synod faces today when trying to answer the question of who has authority in the Synod. Nowadays, in our postmodern context, people can pick and choose whatever authority best suits their argument. Why do exegesis of the scriptures? To find the answer, you can simply do isagogics of Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate-approved sources of doctrinal authority and cut and paste your own conclusions and assert them as authoritative in their own right. I believe this because Walther said it. The official synodical website says, or CTCR said it best, while all the while, this arrogant assertion of LCMS documents ahead of scripture makes us unfit to engage other thinking communities of Christians in meaningful dialogue about what Scripture says and does to create community among us. This repristination authority alongside this buffet-style believing has created an interpretive ghetto for the LCMS, where others avoid, because, avoid us because of the exclusivity of our language and culture about the Bible, or it causes others to engage us, but only so far as they can understand us apart from our own historical hang-ups, like we heard in the first plenary session today. Unfortunately, I don't have the answer to all this, because we're right in the middle of this happening right now. But it does leave to the final point. The final era of authority identified as the denominational disconnect and the quest for authority. In a fascinating article in Modern Reformation magazine, a publication, as you know, by the Alliance of Confessioning Evangelicals, recent financial reports in both the ELCA and LCMS reveal an interesting trend. 
Here's what they note. The laity are collectively giving much more money, up uh, by 191 million year over year in the ELCA, and up by 148 million over a four-year period in the LCMS, but the amount of money making it to its denominational headquarters is down precipitously. Some of the decline is a function of the simple fact that inflation and bad economy means that individual congregations need more money to provide the same local services. But a larger part of the story is apparently that Lutheranism is either behaving in an increasingly more congregational way and or there is a greater and greater distrust of the denominational officials. The lay leaders and the congregations appear to doubt the bureaucracy's ability to meet their needs and they are tiring of the political fights that persist in both bodies. And perhaps the most telling sign of what some are calling the denominational disconnect, the ELCA has now splintered because of its decision and convention, and, they are and there are increasingly more splinter synods that act as a refuge for the dissatisfied in American Lutheranism. How does the LCMS respond to this phenomenon? Campaign? Restructure? Change? word that we only whisper at church? I don't know the answer to that question, but there is a quest for authority. And whether it be congregations pulling away from synodical structure because of lack of trust in authorities, or individuals or groups of individuals simply searching the halls of Lutheran history for a clarion of orthodoxy, or CTCR working hard to be faithful and thorough when it comes to handling this word of God in an authoritative and informative matter for synod, whether it is synod, seeking to understand this word of God in the current context it has been given, we are all seeking authority, and it has never left us. In our daily seeking and studying of the word of God, that sole authority for faith and life and community has been created among us. We seek authorities so we can stand firm. Let us stand firm on the word of God, for that has been and will always continue to be the authority in synod. We must not look to persons and places and positions that exercise the authority of the word of God among us alone, but we must trust and remember that God through the Spirit is working, in, is working among and in those persons and places and positions. Can we err? Absolutely. Do we err? History demonstrates such. But the word of the Lord endures forever. It always only happens innocently enough. It's just a question. A member of your congregation approaches you, and seeing you as filling the office that God has called you to fill, they ask you what the church believes about a topic that is frequently talked about in the community. Always lead with the Bible. That is how you will establish it as, the authorita as authoritative among your community. Even be a little stubborn about the Bible being the only and best way to approach the topic. If they worry about competence, teach them. If they're just being lazy, encourage them. Then and only when the Word of God is established as the authority on the matter, feel free to hand them a what about track. Rifle through your office and find a pert pertinent CTCR document. Be tech-savvy and direct them to the Synod's website. If you're particularly savvy or if you like the handout today, you could even quote a doctrinal resolution, statement of Synod. Or if you have kind of a nostalgic strain in you, you could even quote Walther or Winnikin or Fotenhauer or even Luther as a way of reinforcing what the Word of God says among us. 
Let the voices of the past or present sing an amen to what the Word of God is doing among us as a community of believers. And don't be afraid to resort back to the, well, in seminary I learned this. Because the seminaries are doing a good and faithful job of training people up to be in and of the Word. Being a part of Senate does not uh, does mean that we involve human judgment to many given circumstances, but thanks be to God that being a part of synod means that the word of God is the authoritative voice among us and will remain so even long past we are synod, even into eternity. Thank you.